This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. There are stars that are flashes in the pan, that burn fast and bright, and then there are those artists that endure. On the list of musical acts that continue to sell out their concerts pre- and post-COVID, you will find names like Paul McCartney, The Rolling Stones, Judy Collins, Lindsey Buckingham, and my guest today, one half of the 80s powerhouse Tears for Fears, Kurt Smith. This is Advice for the Young at Heart from the 1989 album The Seeds of Love. By the mid-1980s, Tears for Fears had joined a dense pack of new wave artists that included Simple Minds, Crowded House, and Simply Red in releasing some of the most popular music of the day. The duo would eventually reach the stratospheres of stardom, selling over 30 million albums worldwide. Kurt Smith first met bandmate Roland Orzabal as a teenager in Bath, England, and put out their first album, The Hurting, in 1983. They were still booking small clubs when they released their second album, Songs from the Big Chair, in 1984. By the time the tour ended, however, they had pole vaulted into stadiums. I would guess the actual recording itself took a year, but it was two years between the hurting being released and Songs of the Big Chair, which which then was a long time. You know, obviously, um, the hurting had, had had huge success outside of America. It was big in, in, in New York and L.A. So Songs from the Big Chair, I don't want to dwell on that too much, but, you know, you have the number one album in the U.S. Yeah. 
a, quite a different situation to have the number one album yeah, in the U.S., the I biggest mean, market of them all. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's, that's not the most sophisticated market, but it's the biggest market. It, yeah, it was a little crazy. I mean, you know, like I said, because touring here was, was weird after Songs in the Big Chair because before we played our first ever show in the U.S., we never played when we released The Hurting. There was no real market. Like, we could have played in New York and L.A., but that was kind of it, and that would be too expensive just for those shows. So the first time we ever played in America was after Songs in the Big Chair, and uh, our first show was a little club in Hartford, Connecticut. And by the time we got there, Everybody Wants to Rule the World was number one. So it was the sweatiest show I've ever played, I think. It was ridiculous. But then slowly as we got on, as they managed to then make the venues bigger and bigger, they started changing the venues because everything had taken off. And we went across America. And by the time we got to L.A., we were playing to, you know, 20,000 people. But initially, you found the Ronnie Scotts of Hartford, Connecticut. Exactly. There yeah, it was interesting. But but also a little, I think soul destroying is a harsh word, but it was it became hard work. Well, I want to get to I want to get to the fame, uh, yeah. you know, the wind under your wings, and you really take off. I mean, you know, number one album. The music was coming out of every. I mean, that was so ubiquitous and so omnipresent. Yeah, songs from the big chair was like they were applying it to you like face cream on the radio. <laughs> yeah, no, and and we, you know, because of the way record companies were, and because of at that point in time, yeah, obviously there was no streaming, so the radio radio stations were the important thing. Old school. So you know, we were up doing the morning drive shows, and we were doing interviews all day long. And then sound check, and then shaking hands and kissing babies from local people, you know, local radio stations and things before the show, meet, meet and greets after the show. And it became work. I mean, it was really hard work. And um, myself and Roland are not renowned for being the hardest of workers. We like to take our time. And it, 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 we really didn't enjoy it that much. And what's sad when that happens is, you know, you you know, because when you get home, your, your friends say, "Isn't this wonderful? You traveled the world, and you you went to all these places," and then you have to tell them, "Yeah, but I didn't get to see any of them. I was just working mm-hmm. the whole time. I didn't get to visit any." So of people them. say that to me about the movie business. They say, "You know, oh, you travel all over the world, yeah. and you see." I go, "No, you're no. on set. We go, to, we go to work. It's dark in the morning. Yeah. We come home. It's dark at night. Yeah, and and if the restaurant or the hotel is closed, yeah, then I have a microwave burrito out of the vending machine. Exactly. I said it's really not. No, it's I'm not Travolta traveling with my own chef. Uh, yeah. So. Roland and you meet when you're young. Yeah, you meet right. when you're very young. And I want to just clear up one thing for people. Tears for Fears, is it more like Simon and Garfunkel and Steely Dan where it's two primary players and everybody else's sessions or you had full-time members of the band? No, everyone else's session musicians. I mean, people thought, that, certainly on Songs of the Big Chair, that there was a band because we actually took a picture as, as a band because Ian, our keyboard player, who also co-produced, works a lot on the album with us. And Manny Elias at that point in time was our, had been our drummer on The Hurting and Songs in the Big Chair. I mean, I guess what happens is you, you can tell who, what, who the band are by who is signed to the record label. The only people signed to the record label all through our career was, is me and Roland. And, and so then we get to pick and choose who we worked with. But we'd worked with Manny and Ian from The Hurting through Songs from the Big Chair, and we felt they were kind of band members. But it was So before a, we go back to the origins of you and Roland, I just what, what you're triggering for me now is this idea that was there a time when you're in a studio recording any of your albums after you really take off where you're there and across the room is somebody going, I can't believe I have this person 
to playing sessions with my band. Like, like the, the, the quality of everything just go up. Well, yeah, definitely. And everybody want to play with you? Eventually. I mean, after Songs of the Big Chair, certainly. I mean, on Seeds of Love, after, you know, which is our third album, um, we got to work with Manu Keche on drums. We got to work with Phil Collins on drums. You know, there, there were... Oh, him. Yeah, there were people that, you know, when, when you ask, people will come in and play with you, you know. So we did, although most of the stuff we tend to do ourselves, and I don't know if that's by design or just that that's how we work sometimes. That that normally happens when we hear a specific person. So say with Phil Collins playing on Woman in Chains, we heard Phil Collins, I mean, we heard there's a track on Peter Gabriel's third album called No Self-Control that has this drum fill in, and that's what we heard on Woman in Chains. We heard these tom fills that Phil Collins with the exact same sound. <laughs> with the exact same sound. We were basically... Everyone's asking Phil to come in and play the same fills. Yeah. Just and do that, Phil. Just do did, that again. Exactly. And, um, <laughs> and so I was doing... Um, I performed on this sort of all-star concert at Wembley Stadium for Nelson Mandela's birthday when Nelson Mandela was still in jail. And uh, Phil was the drummer and I came on and sang. And so then I asked him, I said, would you, would you come and drum on this one song that I, we just hear you drumming on? And he said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. And, and so I said, well, should I book a few days in the studio? He's like, well, well no, I, I'd come in around one. I'm, I'm sure I'll be home by tea time. You know, and so, and, and he was. But also we had a mutual friend, Hugh Padgham, who's a producer who produced Phil albums and the Peter Gabriel album and so I got Hugh to come in and get the drum sound before Phil arrived and I think Phil did it in like two takes and then went home. So where do you meet Roland? Um, we met in my hometown of Bath. He had just moved to Bath. He grew up in a uh, place called Portsmouth on the south coast of England. And we had this mutual friend who went to school with him. He was at a different school than me in Bath. But the mutual friend lived near me, and so I knew him, and he was a musician, a bass player, actually. And we met, and we kind of hit it off, even though we really were kind of polar opposites. But I think And we, you were playing what at the time? I, I wasn't playing anything at the time. I was singing. I mean, I've been in a choir since I was four, and I loved singing. It's interesting if, if I think back on it, because I used to sing all the time around, when, since the age of like three or four, I would sing more than I would talk. Um, I would sing along to things on the radio. I would just sing things. And my mother was just got tired of it. And, she, and she's like... Get out of the house and sing. Go, go, go join a choir. If that, you love singing that much, go join a choir. And it's, when you were in public singing, when, when this shy, you seem shy. Did you sing more than you talk because you were shy? Maybe. I think that there's a part of it, and, and I was a, a very shy kid, and, and still am a, a shy. I wouldn't say shy. I'm more of an introvert than shy, I guess. But what's interesting is that's what I sense. I'm not saying this to be kind. Yeah. What I sense is you are unlike many people where they can go in certain gears and they can sing certain ways, but then there are those people who can sing, and the singing is has a powerful emotional undercurrent that at the same time they sit on it. They don't go too far. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I find it an easier medium to communicate with than talking to people. I don't know, but you know, even though this is quite comfortable, sometimes it can be hard. You know, some, yes. You know, it can be difficult, and you know, I'm a homebody. I'm I'm. I would say I'm kind of an introvert. I'm comfortable with a small group of friends. Put me in a big group that I don't know anyone, I am completely uncomfortable. I'm the guy standing in the corner going... Did you have stage fright? I don't have stage fright, really. Well, I... I, 20,000 people eventually? What's what's interesting is, and and I see this happen with my daughter as well, who, as she was growing up, and certainly in her teen years, through to moving 
to New York, had major anxiety issues. And what happens is singing is one thing I know I can do. And my stage fright comes beforehand. As soon as I open my mouth and start singing, I'm comfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. You know what you're doing. Yeah, and I feel like I belong. Um, well, the reason I mentioned that about the emotional combined with the with with the, I can see your hand on a knob, <laughs> and there's just the right amount of emotion. Like the, yeah. like you like I'll, I'll give you a kind of a what's going to seem like a an incongruous reference, but like I would listen to Dylan, yeah, and Dylan would sing a song like an anthem, like and when he sings Hurricane, he sits on that indignation and only yeah. lets it belch out. And when you sing, there's this wonderful, beautiful emotion, but you don't uh, no, get sappy. I leave that to my partner. <laughs> <laughs> Roland is the Roland is the one that you have to try and temper down slightly. He's Byron. He's like he's jazz hands. You know, he's like I'm out there, and he'll be you know performing. I mean, he 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 performs. My voice has more of an undertone of melancholy, I guess, to it to a certain degree. And I'm the, the right amount of it. Yeah, and I'm I'm and I'm the quieter singer. You know, so basically, you know, it's it's you know, a lot, we've been asked a lot of times, you know, how how do you because it's a you know we have a weird setup. We have two lead singers, which which is very rare. And you know, I get asked how do you pick the songs, and it's like to us, it becomes very obvious. Uh-huh. You know, if something demands vocal acrobatics and power and yeah. in your face. That's going to be Roland. If something requires a certain touch of melancholy or slightly undersung or you really want to kind of listen, that would be me. So the songs become very obvious. There's not normally... There's no songs we've ever done, I don't think, where we've both gone in and both think we should do it. Right. We, it becomes obvious. Yeah. No. Well, you can compete because we're two lead singers, so there's ego involved. But when we both try and sing a song... It's clear which one should be singing yeah, it. I got it. It becomes very clear. So, so in between your choral career and you meeting Roland, when did you first get the sense? Because I always wonder, you know, people say to me, you know, did you think you could act? And I say, oh, God, no. No. But my point is, is that was there a point in between choral career and professional, you know, beginnings with Roland when you said to yourself, I really can do this. I mean, I really think I can make a, a go at this. I think when, once myself and Roland started playing together, I mean, what happened, he listened to me. So the start of our, our musical career together, you know, we met and we sort of became friends. Like I said, we were sort of polar opposites. Roland was kind of this sort of in, intellect to a certain degree, but he was a, you know, straight A student, you know, great at everything at school. And by this point in my life, I had gone the other way. I was the dropout, skived off school, got in trouble, got in fights. I used to be an A student before, but but I didn't get enough attention. But you knew that wasn't going to help your rock and roll career. Well, so no, to... I didn't get any attention from my parents. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I was singing along in my room. Roland was in the room to um, a track called The Last Days Are Made by Blue Oyster Cult. I was a big Blue Oyster Cult fan at that point in time because they were bizarre for a rock yeah. band. And he wasn't comfortable being a lead singer. He was a guitar player. And he he didn't think he could be a lead singer. He just wasn't. When did you pick up the bass guitar? When we needed a bass player. So this is how we started when we were 14, our first band. I was the lead singer. That's what I was. Roland just played guitar and did backing vocals. And then as our career progressed, he started feeling more comfortable with lead vocals. And we realized we had two very different voices. So it gave us an extra sort of width and breadth of music we could use. And then so we played 14 from 14 in sort of this 
kids band, school band, and then it's around 16. That lasted about a year, year and a half, and then we we stopped playing together. That band fell apart. And um, he formed another band called Graduate. I think this was when I was around 16. And they fired the bass player because they hated him. And so Roland came to my house and he was like, do you think you can play bass? I'm like, you want to teach me? Then, yeah. Can you play it by tomorrow? Yeah, well, basically, well, next week. (laughs) It was basically next week. He said, I'll I'll teach you all the parts, so you'll go in. did he? Yeah. And um, I went into the audition and aced it because, you know, I knew all the parts and it was fine. And it seemed I was a natural at it. You know, because drums and bass are really, that's the rhythm section. You know, that's the backbone of of a band. And And all the great bands have a good-looking bass player who can sing. Paul. Paul, Paul. Well, so my, you're Paul now. Well, you're the yeah. good-looking bass player who can sing. Yeah, exactly. Well, Paul, Paul was kind of a hero, but <laughs> Phil, Phil Lineup was my other hero uh-huh. from Thin Lizzy. Um, uh-huh. And he was the bass player who sang. So, yeah, between Paul McCartney and Phil Lineup, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can do this. I see myself in that yeah. pantheon. Exactly. Yeah. And so I learned to play bass at 16 and have continued since then and have become, you know, now, now I've, I've become competent. Musician Kurt Smith. If you love conversations with contemplative rockers from the 1980s, be sure to check out my episode with R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe. In a band dynamic, everyone's got an idea and an opinion. And what happened? What, what happens when it all comes together is this this beautiful compromise, where one person kind of oversees one part, another oversees another part. Somehow it all works, and that chemistry served us pretty well for most of our career. But, but it was, you know, it was at times very, very difficult. Hear the rest of my conversation with Michael Stipe at heresthething.org. After the break, Kurt Smith shares what was going on in his head when he left Tears for Fears at the height of their fame. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. 
Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Peter Jackson's recent Beatles documentary, Get Back, vividly demonstrates how even the most successful acts are not without their tensions. And like the Beatles, many artists, including Simon and Garfunkel, Journey, and the Beach Boys, just to name a few, have all experienced the growing pains that come with enormous commercial success. Tears for Fears ultimately succumbed to that same musical fate. That's Kurt Smith's bandmate Roland Orzabal singing Head Over Heels from Tears for Fear's seminal album, Songs from the Big Chair. After three albums and tens of millions in sales, Kurt Smith and Roland Orzabal's creative partnership was severed in 1990. Although Orzabal would go on to release two additional albums under the name Tears for Fears, it would be 10 years before the duo would reunite to release new work together including this year's album, The Tipping Point. Kurt Smith shared how Tears for Fears, at its essence, was a sound forged by two uniquely different creative minds. Well, we had the band graduate, and, the, and that band, when we were 18, we had to wait for Roland to turn 18, signed a record deal with a record label in England. Um, but we... We never felt comfortable in that band. It was like a kind of 60s... Sort Graduate. Of, yeah, 60s kind of retroish, light-hearted pop songs. Covers? We, you were writing point, them? We were writing, Who yeah. was doing most of the writing? Roland, and still to this day it's Roland, but I would say then 20 30% me. But it's, it's hard to really sort of quantify the writing thing because even when Roland's writing, I... A lot of the time, certainly in early in our career, or during the hurting, especially, I'd always be in the room, and I'd be—I'm normally the one in the back, as I am as a sort of producer, going, "No, yes, right. yeah, that—that's that's bad." Yeah. Um, so you're kind of doing it together. I don't like the word tongue. Yeah. Take the word tongue out. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. and those things have happened. Yeah. yeah. Like that—that that line is dreadful. 
that's just horrible. Get rid of it. And he was receptive. Absolutely, yeah. He wanted yeah. to collaborate with yeah. you. He yeah. wanted a kind of a muse in the background because he was doing most of the yeah. writing. And I think this happens with a lot of, of, of writers in, in any industry where you can get so self-involved that you don't know what's good or not. You don't know what's resonating with other people because it's all in your head. So I'm kind of the sounding board, I guess. So that's sort of how it works when we work together. You know, on The Hurting, we did a lot more stuff together. On the newest album we've done, The Tipping Point, this is the first time we've worked very closely together mm-hmm. in, in a long time. W- which band of yours had the number one song in Spain? That was Graduate. Okay, yeah. how, did, how did that happen? How did English guys from Bath write a song about reggae that became the number one hit in Spain? What the hell is going on but, here? I no idea. I mean, they, they kind of, it's because we were young and good looking. It's like club music. It, it, was, it was definitely sort of danceable, and it just took off in Spain for some obscure reason. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to it, so we had screaming girls after us in, in Spain. And that's, you that know, sounds good. this is how I remember when, John Lennon was killed because that's where we were. 1980. We were, we were in Spain promoting that single in a hotel in Spain. And so every interview we ended up doing, of course, was about John Lennon. But uh, yeah, that was weird. So it was uh, kind of our first taste of, of success as such. But then as a band, we then went touring around Europe in two vans, lugging the gear ourselves, driving ourselves. And myself and Roland... As you know, I don't, I don't need to say this too many times, but we're not really particularly into hard labor. <laughs> and um, we decided by the end of this three weeks um, of touring Germany that we'd had enough. And um, we sort of sat down together and said, you know, this is not for us then. And, and the, the other guys in the band loved it. You know, they loved just playing live. They were party kind of people. And we wanted to do something that had more depth. Now, I'm going to read from our prep. It says, The song Mad World was born of the time in their lives as they were finding themselves as young adults. We were sitting in his flat, says Smith, and we were looking out the window at people going to work in existences we thought were pointless. So did you have, I mean, like many artists, you're like, what's the point? Where do we fit in? Yeah, that that was more the point. The point was we felt we did not fit in in that world. We, we definitely felt outside of that world. We didn't feel we could ever be in that world. We didn't understand it. I, I didn't understand training, the idea of training for a career and then being in that career for the rest of your life, even though I ended up training for this career, <laughs> being in this career for my whole life. But I don't consider this a career because it's a passion and it's something I enjoy doing, so it's it's slightly different. But yeah, we were looking at it, people, and it was it was in the morning and they were all going to work. And and we were like this. It was just like this sort of, you know, treadmill treadmill of of people going, then going to lunch, and then going back, and then you know five o'clock they all go home and all kind of dressed the same, and and it was just peculiar to us. So yeah, we we felt like outsiders to a certain degree, and and I think you know, the people we related to at that point in time were each other. That was pretty much it. Because we both felt the same like a way. Lot of, like a lot of collaborations. Like yeah. That. And that's when we, you know, when we decided to leave graduate because we didn't feel like the other three. We didn't feel like we had anything in common with them. They didn't feel like outsiders. They wanted, you know, 
to do. They could have played that same pub forever. Oh, absolutely. You know, as long as they got free drinks and got laid afterwards. That was was pretty much what they wanted to do. Something like that, yeah. Um, And we wanted to say something. You know, that was our desire. You wanted to to explore. Yeah, and so we decided to leave. And and this coincided at a time in, in music when, you know, synthesizers were just becoming bigger. The Lynn drum machine had just come in, which used real drum samples, even though they don't sound real to me anymore, but... They, they were the most real you could find at that point in time. So you didn't need a drummer. You didn't need a keyboard. You know, anyone could do it. You could program it and you could sequence it yourself. So you didn't need to be an expert keyboard player. You didn't mm-hmm. need to be a fantastic drummer. You just program it yourself. The computer was expert enough. Yeah, it would correct your timing. <laughs> it would, you know, it would, it would, you know, give you suggestions, you know. I mean, for a, like a sequence, like a do 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 you know, all you do is hold a chord and the, the keyboard did it for you, you know, so it was... But when um, you guys are, are shaping this yourselves, when Roland is writing and you're, chip, you know, and you're pitching in there and so forth and you're doing this stuff and then you wind up getting into a studio where yeah. my understanding is people who get to that level, you know, once you hit it big in 85, they have a surge of producers that want to work with them and record with them. What did a producer give to you? What did they do for you? Um, Were they of any help? We oh, didn't need that with help. That, with that question, we didn't need that help eventually. I mean, Songs of the Big Chair was the last time we used a producer. Mm-hmm. Since then, we produced ourselves mm-hmm. with the help of an engineer or, you know, someone else normally is in the studio, but, but the production is normally ours because we'd learned enough by then. I think. Or a primal scream therapist as well. Yeah. Arthur Jano came to one of our shows. Um, he came to a show in London. And uh, I met him. He was very pleasant, very nice. And he's like, can I take you to lunch? He wanted to be in the business and Hollywood. And he was, yeah. he was all that. He was so, you know, all the things I dislike about Los Angeles. But you've, but you've lasted there a long time. You know, I feel more at home in New York, I have to say. New York is the same. New Yorkers have changed. And what's changed is there's a decrease in the number of people who got the key rule, which is you have to be very aware of other people. Yeah. Whenever people said that New Yorkers were rude or what have you, I was always uh, taken aback because I thought, New York? When I first came here in, in the late 70s to go to finish college, yeah. um, New Yorkers were some of the most respectful and, and polite because they knew we were in this thing together. I remember I was with a therapist years ago during the time of my life because I was living out there and I was behind the wheel of a car, so I had to stop drinking Right. because I was shit-faced drunk every night for like two years in L.A. behind the wheel of a car. And one day I woke up and I went, that's got to end. <laughs> yeah. And this, this therapist said to me, he goes, I have a tip for you. He says, here's the only thing I, th- I believe you need to keep in mind. That's the best form of therapy. And he said, forgive everybody. And I sat there and I go, wow, man. Wow. I go, you mean like Jesus? And he goes, well, don't set your goals that high. And he said, I'm trying to lower the bar a little bit. You know, it, it, kind of like Jesus. Maybe try yeah. to be a little like Jesus. And I thought to myself, that like blew my mind. He, was just, he said, just forgive everybody and move on yeah. with your well, life. Which brings me to... You and him when you when you split up. Oh yeah. Now when you split yeah. up with someone, I'm less interested in the acrimony because everything's the same. I mean, in the idea that another generation of people around the world are going to be spray painted by Beatlemania again yeah. since Get Back came out. I couldn't watch it. Um, it was interesting. Roland watched the whole thing. I watched 40 minutes. And why? It brought back too many bad memories. I was like, I've been there. I fucking hated it. And it's just, you know, because McCartney was Roland at that point in time. And, you know, and I I was... Actually, to be honest, I think I was probably more George. Uh, I don't know. But it was that kind of... 
you know, someone is just getting a bit too big. Because I, I, in my opinion, you know, and this is, again, based on the first 40 minutes I watched, although it may have been necessary because someone had to be the driving force, I guess. Once Epstein died, indeed, someone yeah. had to be. There was a vacuum yeah. there. Yeah. And, and also, I think, weirdly, at the age they were then, right. I think was the age pretty much we were when we split up. So I can relate. And again, it brought back bad memories, which is why you I broke never, up what year? never... never we broke up in I well I left after Seeds of Love at the end of the tour so 1990 so I was I was 29 then so late 20s but I like already, them. but I'd already decided I was going to leave prior to the tour made the big mistake of telling Roland that before we toured but that's a different story should have probably waited But you wanted him to know how you felt Yeah and that Did you know, he care this how is you my felt? last tour on the surface, no. I mean, he was like, well, fuck you then. Um, but I think he was kind of hurt by it, and that's sort of come out since then, you know. But what it is, and or at least what I've discovered, uh, and which is why New York, I've always said, and, and my wife, and they go hand in hand because we met in New York, the city and my wife were my savior at that point in time. Because what happens in your mid to late 20s, you you don't want to be that guy from that band. Mm-hmm. You really want to be an individual. You're you're still looking for your individuality and and who you are as, in our cases, men or, or you know. Or, and and I think the same applies for women. That's when you're really becoming established as a an individual, and to be a part of this group, I didn't feel comfortable in it anymore. Plus, the fame side was really screwing me up. How um, so? It wasn't healthy for me. I drank too much, probably took, it was the 80s, probably took too much cocaine at that point in time. I didn't think it was healthy. Really? I didn't you did a lot of cocaine in the 80s? It's strange. Huh. So obviously you know the experience. Um, uh, so oh, yeah. I just didn't think it was healthy. And, and England, you know, the answer to everything in England is, you know, if you're older, it's put the kettle on, I'll, I'll go make some tea. Or if you're at that age, let's just go down to the pub and get fucked up. You know, that'll, you know, if you're feeling sad, let's go to the pub. Um, and I knew that's not what I I needed. Yeah. Um, and I've met Francis in New York, and that's not the way New York operates particularly. I mean, obviously, people drink here, and, and I did to a certain degree when I came here. But uh, I stayed with a friend upstate. This, this was during se- the recording of Seeds of Love in 1988. I, was, I went through a divorce during the Seeds of Love, and it really, that and the drinking and everything else that was going on just really messed me up. And I'm like, I, I can't be just going down the pub. This is not going to help. But how does the shy guy who gets married and for whatever reason it doesn't matter your first marriage ends were you at the height of your fame when the first marriage ended yeah was it prior no no so it was a casualty of fame to a degree to a degree I mean uh, it wasn't my choice you know I think you know it was one of those things where uh, clearly I got married too young you know so what gave you the courage or what gave you the ability to get married again oh well that was because I'd grown up by then you know, you know, I, I to get over my divorce. Weirdly, I mean, this is why I have, you know, some kind of guardian angel looks after me. But I was like, I, I need to go stay with someone who doesn't drink, right? So I need to just like deal with the emotion because I wasn't dealing with how hurt and destroyed I was by this divorce. I went to this um, tour manager and his wife, who was, you know, in AA. I mean, not that it matters, but neither of them drank. So I went and stayed with them in Brewster, upstate New York, just not that far outside the city, I guess. And I was with them depressed for like two weeks, you know, 
just letting the emotion out, just feeling it. And then I, I think after two weeks, they got bored with me being there. And they're like, we're taking you into the city. We're going out. There's this party, St. Patrick's Day party happening. In It was in the meatpacking district. Let's go out. Let's get you out. Come on. So I went out with them. And weirdly, that's where I met my wife. So How my, long did you know her after you got married? Oh, we got married quite a while later. Um, you dated um, for a while. Yeah, we lived together by the end of that year. By the end of 88, I bought the apartment, my, my apartment in New York in Soho. You were in Soho? Yeah, on Mercer Street between Houston and Prince. What years were you in New York? 88 to 98. Got it. Wow. So for me, I mean, after you get married and you have a kind of tumultuous parting with that person, getting married, I was single for 11 years and it was really tough. Yeah. And I dated people and I dated one person in particular who just got sick of the fact that I wouldn't get married. I, wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I had a very close relationship with them and they were, you know, I was, uh, you know, only with that woman. But I just couldn't. I thought, I just can't yeah. do it. Well, we were, myself, I can't. myself and Francis never really put much emphasis on being married. You know, she's never taken my name. Can't say I blame her with a name like Smith. But, um, you know, she was known as Frances Pennington in the industry. She's always been known as, you know, as that in, in the music industry, which, you know, she was well known in, especially in America. I mean, in fact, when I used to go into MTV, they used to call me Mr. Pennington because they knew Frances far better <laughs> than me. Mr. Thatcher. Yeah. yeah, they used to know, know, know her better, far better than me. Yeah, well, let's get back to your other ex, who you remarry yeah. uh, in musical terms. So how did you get back together? We, I mean, the comedy line is by facts, if anyone remembers what a facts is. But... Yes. Um, no, we had ongoing business in, interests together. You know, I left. We didn't speak to each other at all during my period in New For York. For how long? Um, nine, A while. Nine years. <sighs> yeah. You know, I was just enjoying life in New York. You know, there, there was this joy. And again, the fame side, the other thing New York gave me, the fame side in England, I lived in Bath, my hometown. So I'm ostensibly the most famous person ever born there. So you can't take a ship without everyone knowing about it. But you come to New York and no one gives a damn, you know. I mean, I have, I, in the 10 years I lived in New York, 10 years I lived in New York, I was stopped on the street once. In the last four years that my kid has been at NYU and I've been coming to visit a lot more, I've been stopped far more times, interestingly, and all by younger people. There is this resurgence yeah, of interest it's, in it's, your music. It's weird, and it happened to me on the way here. Good music is always going to come back. Good music is always going to have a resurgence. That, that is my theory. I, well, my theory has always been that good music, if you put some thought and some depth into it, is the music that will last. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is where I have disagreements with people who are fans of an era, right? So I get so many people that, you know, of my age, not younger people, that come up to me and say, you know, yeah, music nowadays is not as good as it was in the 80s. And I'm like, well, yeah, it is. You just got to go find it. <laughs> and you have this weird vision of nostalgia for that decade but the music you're remembering is the good stuff yeah. there was just as much and that applies to anybody that was just as much crap then as there is now <laughs> right, right, just right, right. as much Tears for Fears Kurt Smith if you're enjoying this episode don't keep it to yourself tell a friend and be sure to follow us on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts when we return, Kurt Smith shares the circumstances that led to his breakup with bandmate Roland Orzabal. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. That's Kurt Smith singing Mad World from Tears for Fears' 1983 album, The Hurting. Smith left Tears for Fears in 1990. He moved to the United States and pursued other musical interests, resulting in several solo albums and a new band called Mayfield. Kurt Smith and Roland Orzabal reunited in 2000, a decade after their acrimonious split. What began as business communications through a fax machine eventually led to the pair finally meeting face-to-face. We end up talking on the phone. So Where was he at the time? He was in England, and I, was, I had just moved to L.A. 
the fact came through about some like business thing because we own these buildings in England together. And I was kind of like tired of talking through lawyers and accountants and, you know, and you're spending money on them every time you're using them. And I'm like, why don't we just get on the phone and talk about this? Because it was a complicated sort of situation. And so we did. You know, his recollection is, oh, my God, you, I sounded very American to him because I'd lived, you know, in America for 10 years by then. And it's just felt like there was so much water under the bridge. He'd already had a family. I was just starting a family. And we'd grown up. We were just as simple as that. We were, we were fully formed. Forgive everybody. We were fully formed adults who really didn't have those same grudges. Mm. When we parted, we weren't fully formed adults. Mm. We didn't have that individual strength. Where did you see each other next? I went back because my family, he lived in Bath. My, both my brothers still live in Bath. So I was back. He was in ba- Bath at that time? Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. where he still lives? He still has a house there, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. So I, I was back visiting my family and my mother, who was still alive then, and my brothers. And we went out to dinner and seemed like quite normal. And it was quite pleasant. And then uh, he said, you know, do you fancy sort of maybe trying to work together again? And so I I said, well, we can have a go. I mean, let's, why not? You know, let's, let's have a go and see if anything comes. And if nothing comes, no pressure, then it's, we're not on the same wavelength anymore. And and that's okay, too. And we went in and uh, we wrote this song called uh, Closest Thing to Heaven, which is off a an album called um, Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, which, of course, you know, is the funny title of the album. And it ended up being a kind of light-hearted album. It was more of a celebration of us getting back together again. It it didn't really have the depth of the first three albums and the new album, The Tipping Point, I don't think. But it was still really good, and we had a really good time doing it, and, and it was nice to be working together again. So since then, we've been touring and working together, and it seems to be good. You know, we, we know we need ind- our individual space, you know, when we're not working together. Mm-hmm. We don't see each other. We don't see each other socially. We, we know we're very different people, but we also know now that that's our strength. But also, I'm always wondering, you know, I read, this is only from what I read, that some of the tension was because of his perfectionism was the word they keep using, his perfectionism. Yeah, that was definitely the tension during Seeds of Love. Yeah, that he was getting into everything, had to be precise and exact and down to, like when we had Manu Kache come in and play drums on the song called Batman Song. And Manu is a wonderful drummer. But his timing is not exact, you know, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Which I personally like. Mm-hmm. I, I like the kind of roughness. Mm-hmm. But Roland was into grids. He was into looking at the Fairlight, which was the computer we were using at the time. So it was a, com- you know, Manu's take on, Manu- on Badman Song is, is 20 takes edited together so that they were exactly in time. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing drove me nuts. But at the same time, did you find yourself like years later after you split up with him, you're in a room with other people and you're sitting there going, God, there's a part of me that really misses oh, yeah. Roland's perfectionism. Um, <laughs> were there benefits to it as well, his approach? Yeah, but the, weirdly, the benefits are not, you know, because he's got over to a certain degree that neatness and, you know, he does... OCD. Yeah, he's now got into um, more feel stuff. I mean, he's he's moved more towards me on that, I think. What I missed was... Roland has this, which can be incredibly useful and frustrating and annoying, all of these things, and thoroughly enjoyable. Lack of a filter. (laughs) And that's kind of what I missed. Shit just comes out of him. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's bad, Mm -hmm. but now and again, it's just like, whoa, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful. 
I don't have that freedom. I'm, I am the introvert. I don't, mm. you know, I, I, have You're many, more I have many filters. So how it, it's interesting how it works. And we've come to appreciate each other far more. And certainly during the tipping point, we definitely got to a point where we really appreciated what we both brought to the party. And I think this is the first time that's happened since the hurting to me. And I think Roland, weirdly, you know, we were awarded this thing called the Ivan Novello Award, which is a songwriting award in England for our body of work. It's, it's kind of like the musical Oscars kind of in England. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he gave his little speech because he tends to be enjoy those kind of things. And he had a few drinks. He described me as the break to his accelerator. And I think that's probably the best description I've, I've heard of our relationship that works. together. That yeah. works. Now, I see that you acted. How did you feel? How did you like it? Oh, I loved it. It was fun. But I was playing myself, you know, and I've done it like four, what was it, four times? You were playing literally yourself. Yeah, yeah, in this um, TV show called Psych and and the movies as well. And actually, and it's a a fan. I mean, James Roday Rodriguez, who's who's also a Tish alumni, he's a huge fan. Did they have you sing? um, They did on one, the first one I went on. Um, I redid their theme tune for the second one. And then the other ones were just kind of acting, basically. But I always was playing myself. So, I mean, I guess you call it acting because they're not the words I would necessarily say, even though I did change some of them. I spent my life saying things yeah. other people have written. It's yeah, been yeah. exhausting at times, yeah. I must say. Yeah, I mean, and, I, and there are times that I, I, I've said to them, like, do you mind if I change it a little bit? Because just, there's no way I would say that. It didn't that. fit in your mouth, yeah. yeah. Now, what about teaching? Have you ever taught? Um, I've guest taught it at NYU. Music in general or vocals? Um, no, not um, music business, um, really, uh-huh. more than anything, or young artists. So I guest taught at NYU when I lived in New at, York. At Clive? No, uh, it wasn't no, there Clive yet. wasn't there yet. Right. Um, my, my, actually, my connection with NYU goes back a ways because I also opened, because I was on the charity board, which is actually weirdly how me and Francis had our second date because I started the charity in America, uh, the Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy Center that's at NYU. I opened that because I was part of, you know, raising the funds to build it, that program at NYU. What would you say, you guys, the emphasis is on your new album? Or what, what kind of an album did you want? Did you sit down and map out the texture of that? And the, and the... We did eventually. I mean, again, the same thing. I mean, it took us forever because we spent seven years working on this record from start to finish. But, it, but initially, it was at the behest of sort of our management and record company. At the time, they wanted us to work with all these young producers and songwriters and hopefully, you know, get us to make a modern record, and I have no idea what that means, still don't. Your voice, you have such a, I mean, I hope you never stop singing, because you have such a beautiful voice and such a signature voice. How was that song written? When you write a song that just resonates now, this is 1985. I mean, Everybody Wants to Rule the World's an interesting one because it was an afterthought, effectively. When you get sort of near the end of a project, you then start looking at what you're missing because we always like an album to have a, a sort of, not necessarily a story. I mean, it becomes a story, but it's a journey. So it needs these ups and downs, and sometimes it needs something quiet and deep, and sometimes you're missing that light-hearted kind of bouncy, poppier kind of song. I think Boys of Summer had come out. You know, that's the kind of, like driving down a freeway in the USA kind of song that bounces along and you can sing along to it, even though the lyrics ended up being a lot deeper than that. So there's this sort of balance of something that you may not listen intently to the lyrics, 
but it sort of is a little earworm already. And then you kind of go, oh, that song's heavier than I thought it was because it's a bouncy pop song. We had this shuffle beat, the dun 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 We're like, yeah, that's the kind of thing we're missing. So we started working on this shuffle beat, and uh, that's where everybody came from. And from start to finish, and the album took us two years to make, but that one song, two weeks. I mean, I look at those pictures of those albums. You, you I mean, you look like you look like an altar boy. Yeah, you have that really like such a sweet little. You look like a little boy. You're so innocent. I was a little boy. You yeah, were a little yeah. boy. When you look at those albums and you see that kid, what do you think? Well, the fact that I've survived it is a miracle in and of itself, <laughs> and the fact that we're still doing it and still enjoying it, and the fact that you know, last year when we toured was our most successful tour ever in our career. <laughs> And it's it's kind of crazy. You're going to keep at it for a little while, maybe? Oh, without question. The two of us now are the closest we've been since we first started Tears for Fears as such, since we were like 18. We're old enough and wise enough to appreciate what we both bring to the party, and, and that's a great position to be in. My thanks to Tears for Fears' Kurt Smith. I'll leave you with a little bit more of Everybody Wants to Rule the World from Songs from the Big Chair. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.